Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hacking HR podcast, the show where we talk about the amazing future of human resources and all things at the intersection of future of work, technology, innovation, organizations, transformation, and people. At Hacking HR, we believe that human resources can become the most important trailblazer, leading people and organizations successfully and effectively into the new reality of work and life. To do that, we must rise to the challenges of our times, shoot for the stars, and achieve our fantastic potential. During this show, we discuss ideas, insights, data, experiences, stories, and anything else that can contribute to helping you become and be a better HR leader and practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today and enjoy the show. I think it's really quite simple. Um, the tactics, the order taking, the administrative of HR is, is comparatively easy. It's transactional. You get rewarded for doing the transaction properly. You get rewarded for doing the transaction frequently to the client's expectations, which is not necessarily what's right for the organization. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's safer to do the transactional administrative stuff. It's, it's much harder um, and I would say a little bit scary, it's certainly in the beginning, to put yourself out there, to advance an opinion, to engage on a strategic level with a client, and to try to move the organization forward because that's not what HR traditionally does. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hacking HR podcast. Very happy to have Ken Summers with me today. How are you doing, Ken? I'm terrific, Enrique. How are you? I'm good. You know, considering all that's going on in our world these days, I, I think that, you know, I'm fortunate to, to be okay and healthy. That's the, that's the number one priority these days, huh? It is the truth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, very excited to talk to you and bring to the table all these ideas about strategy and HR. That's, that's been part of your career. And it seems sometimes that those two concepts are uh, contradicting each other, even though they should be together, right? Sad, sad but true, yes. So how do, wh- why, let me begin by, by, by asking you this question. Why is it that HR has been so stubbornly focused on the tactical thinking the transactional thinking, the administrative thinking, and they have put so little time into thinking about a strategy or building the capabilities to be more strategic. What has been, what's, what's on the way for us to be more strategic, if you will? Sure. So obviously this is just one, one person's opinion. And I'm sure that there are many out there who will either see it differently or just downright disagree with me. And that's okay. That's that beautiful, makes right? Good, yeah, it makes for good conversation. Um, But uh, I think it's really quite simple. Um, The tactics, the order taking, the administrative of HR is is comparatively easy. It's transactional. 
you get rewarded for doing the transaction properly. You get rewarded for doing the transaction frequently to the client's expectations, which is not necessarily what's right for the organization. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's safer to do the transactional administrative stuff. It's, it's much harder. Um, and I would say a little bit scary. It's certainly in the beginning to put yourself out there to advance an opinion, to engage on a strategic level with a client and to try to move the organization forward because that's not what HR traditionally does. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you made me think about several interviews that I've had in the past when you said about HR being the order taker in the organization. It's being, it's being that transaction. It's pretty much, you know, you, you, you need to hire somebody and you just put out whatever you're posting that you have created in the past, you copy paste it and do it again. Exactly. And, and I think that's, that's, it's a wasted opportunity for us to add much more value to, uh, to our clients. But at the same time, I, and I want to see what your thoughts are on, on, on this idea that I want to uh, uh, share with you. Somebody told me, I, I, I was venting my frustration with an HR leader and I was telling her, how is it possible that I'm talking to this HR person and they are saying this and this and that? Are they blind? Why they don't see these other opportunities? And she told me, well, it's because they are rewarded by the output of the work that they do, by the amount of something that they are doing, regardless of whether that something is making a change in the organization or not. What, what does come to mind when I say that? Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) Far too many examples to prove the point is what comes to mind. Um, uh, Can can I try to tell you a quick story uh, to illustrate? Um, So I'm I'm not going to name organizations or individuals for obvious reasons. But um, I had a situation once not too many years ago where I was the, uh, the business partner to uh, a division leader in uh, the, the company where I was working. And the number two salesperson in the number one office in the country was uh, observed not doing anything illegal, but doing something that was clearly, definitively, um, well, I'll say amoral. Yeah. <laughs> um, So I brought this to the attention of the business leader. We talked about the options. And when he asked my opinion for what to do, um, which I gave, he threw me out of his office. (laughs) I mean, quite literally threw me out of a, get out of here, come back to me when you have a better answer. Went away, consulted with compliance just to make sure that I had my, my facts right. Went back to the business leader and basically said, look, uh, Mr. X, you really need to terminate the employment of this individual. Started yelling at me. And I said, what really put him over the edge, frankly, was I said, it's really your reputation if you don't take appropriate business action, considering the circumstances here, which were not in doubt. The circumstances were undisputed. It was clear that the behavior had taken place. Um, So that was not an issue. And um, we agreed to disagree again, a little bit more politely. But two weeks later, my boss called me in and said, your client no longer views you as strategic and we'll have to find you another job or you'll have to leave the organization. Now, I tell the story not to say woe is me because quite the contrary. Um, 
you know, I've always believed that to be effective as a business partner, to be effective as a, as a thought partner and, and uh, a business strategist with the line, you have to have the courage to do the right thing. Yeah. And I can look myself in the mirror on that episode. I can look myself in the mirror on several others. Fortunately, I haven't had too many of those. Um, but I think that that's one of the reasons why people are afraid to step out of that administrative transactional environment, because to add more value to the organization involves risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, as, as you are sharing that story, I am thinking about two of the major social issues that we have dealt with in the United States in the past four or five years, the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matters, uh, the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement. And if you think about what, what happens in, with the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, you can trace that back always to a workplace because all of these people were either employees or leaders. So even police mm -hmm. departments are workplaces. Of course. And, and then you think, what happened? What was going on with HR in that organization? At least in the Me Too movement, I, I don't think there's still a connection in the Black Lives Matter movement, but in the Me Too movement, you would always trace back something that had to do with HR. Either people coming forward, individuals coming forward and saying, you're my HR partner, you're my HR leader, and uh, this person is harassing me, this person is discriminating against me, and perhaps HR not doing the right thing, which is why you know, there's research that shows that anywhere between 50 and 80% of the employees do not trust uh, HR. Um, how, how, do, how can we change that? And by the way, and, and I say all this, people who, who uh, watch our uh, video or who hear this podcast, they know how much I love HR, but the kind of love that is like, well, you know, if we, if we are meant to be together for the long time, uh, you know, we got to change, right? Something has to change. Yeah. So how can we start changing that conversation, if you will? Yeah, well, and, and I agree with you, by the way, I would characterize it as, as tough love. We have tough yeah. love for the profession. Correct. Just like you might have tough love for a child. Um, how do we change it? Um, we need more people willing to step up, confront the, the uglies that exist, and, and they, they are out there, and, and, and have the, the intestinal fortitude <laughs> to do the right thing until we as a community do that consistently predictably our reputation will always be suspect with with many employees and we'll never have that coveted seat at the table yeah. because if all you're viewed as someone who will do whatever the line asks you to do what do, what do they need you at the table for yeah, uh, yeah. so for me it, it it's a simple answer, but very hard to execute. You have, and I think you have to know your business. You have to have established your credibility in the organization. And that's not hard. That means just doing what you say you're going to do and building the trust with your, with your business partners. And in those rare situations, because I think they are generally rare where you observe that the organization or, or a line manager is not doing the right thing, stepping in there and making it correct, making it right yeah, and influencing absolutely. a better outcome. Absolutely. You know, people always ask this question about why don't we have a seat at the table, right? HR, which is an expression, by the way, that 
sometimes I don't, I don't necessarily like because it sounds no. to me as something asking for permission or something like that. Precisely. And I, and I always say, you know, this is a little bit of, of like the dilemma of the chicken and the egg, meaning don't, we don't have a seat at the table either because business leaders or, H or, or the, the leaders of the organization do not see the value that we could potentially bring. Therefore, they won't invite us to that table or because we're not creating the value to be seen and to be respected and to be acknowledged and to not be ignored. And I, I just think in, in my view, it's, it would be the easiest way out would be to say, well, it's because I'm not invited. To me, the difficult way out is, well, maybe I'm not creating the kind of value that I should be creating so that people don't say, I hate HR, but instead they say, I cannot live without HR. What, what, what do you think about that? Oh, I, I think you're spot on. And, and, and again, um, you know, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I don't think the solution is very difficult. I think executing on the solution is the hard part. We know what we have to do. Um, you know, to be effective as a business partner in any significant organization, there's a, there's a few things. You have to have credibility. You have to build trust. You have to deliver on your commitments. And you have to have the guts to say no when no is the right answer. Yeah. Um, I wish I had something more sophisticated, more scientific, <laughs> um, but I, I really believe it comes down to that. And, and, um, and I think it's spot on. I mean, it, and, 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 and to be honest, you, you think about those things and they are very simple to say, but as you're sharing, they are difficult to execute. Sometimes people are rewarded by just doing the basics or they are punished if they do something that is not that ends up being wrong uh, in the sense of like failing as an experiment if you will not doing something wrong as in morally wrong but doing something as in we failed in this initiative so now we gotta reroute into different direction right yeah yeah i mean i look um i can think of far too many examples where um i've made mistakes in my career um most of them fortunately were not big ones but every now and then I've had a couple of doozies. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have leadership in the function that um, you know, they gave me the feedback. Most of the time it was constructive, although a few times it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and, and what you have to do is you have to learn from those experiences. Yeah. Because that's, that's the other thing that I, I see far too often is that you know, if, if you're in if you're in one of those transactional modes, may not be a transactional role, but you may be managing it as a transactional role. As long as as long as you do what you're asked to do, and you don't screw it up, you get a pat on the head and sent along your way. Um, but if you step out of that, if you, if you try to add more value. Um, you're going to, there are going to be mistakes along the way. Yeah. We, and, and for me, the thing that I've always told people who work for me is it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, tell me about it. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm going to support you in public in private. We'll coach and figure out how to do it better. But what I ask people to do is not make the same mistake twice. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but you have to be willing to, put your intellectual capital at risk. You have to be willing to make mistakes. And when you do make the mistakes, learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. I always say in Hacking HR, when I talk to the chapters that we have all over the world, I tell them, 
making mistakes is okay. We just like to make new mistakes whenever we make a mistake. We don't like yes. to make the same that we did bef- that we made before, because then that means that we didn't progress too far from that first mistake, right? It's it's you gotta the the, the valuable lesson here is to take the valuable lesson out of those mistakes and to do better and be better next time. Right. And to demonstrate to either your manager or the client, depending upon the circumstances, that it was a learning experience and we're going to do better in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ken, when you think, I don't know if you ever think about this, but if you do, when you think about the, your dream HR function, the, the kind of HR function, I know you do, you, you help a lot of your clients to rethink their, their HR role, the, the way they approach HR. When you paint for them the ideal HR function that they can have, what does it look like? How does it look like? So I'll, I'll confess a bias. I, I have been and remain a fan of the Ulrich Star model mm-hmm. for organization design, and, and it applies to HR as it does to any other organization in, in a business. Um, I think that the business partner center of excellence model works really well with the right leadership. And by, by the right leadership, let, let me give you an example of where I think it works well. And honestly, where, the way I've tried to behave in it, I came up as a, as a center of excellence guy. I came up as a specialist in a couple of areas and mid-career transition to a business partner role. One of the things, and, and perhaps because I grew up on the COE side, I have a, a different point of view, but I have always, always, always when it, say it's compensation season, I always bring my comp business partner with me to the client meetings. He or she is the subject matter expert in compensation. My job is to understand the client's business and how to deploy the various bits of HR, whether it's compensation, benefits, talent acquisition, you name it, to partner with them to bring a good solution to the client organization. And I think what happens far too often, I'm answering your question in reverse. I'm giving an example of what doesn't work is when, when the business partners try to own the relationship exclusively, it's not good for the client. It's not good for the business and it doesn't breed teamwork within the HR organization. So I I do believe, I do believe in the business partner center of excellence model, but it has to be mutually inclusive. I need to bring my, my subject matter experts with me to the client table. They need to pull me in when they become aware of an issue. Um, and, and together, it's, it sounds trite, but we are stronger together. Yeah. We're more effective together. We deliver better value together. So that, that to me, the, the perfect HR business model is right out of the Ulrich book because I've seen it work. Uh, I've made it work. I've also been in organizations where it doesn't work so well. Yeah. Let me put, I, I want to push the envelope in this a little sure. bit. Um, and I know you are always very open to, to, to the controversy that comes out of, uh, you know, creative conversations. In a world where things change so fast, we, we hear more about the, the, the T model where people are, they go deep in an area of expertise where they can continue to unveil more knowledge, but they also go wide 
in, in, a, in the spectrum of different areas of expertise where they can connect dots, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you feel that by just going deep, say the, using the, the example that you just used, the example of compensation, that having an expert in compensation who is not looking necessarily across the board, could we be making the mistake of just going in one direction and not connecting the dots of compensation, for example, with the dots of employee experience, with the dots of social justice, with the dots of human experience, with the dots of technology, et cetera. Do you think there could be a risk in there just by going vertically deep and not horizontally wide? Yeah, it, uh, yes, I do. And, and I'm really glad you asked that question because I don't think the two models are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, many times I've been in a more traditional Ulrich star model environment, but what, what I've done, and again, many times is if I have a project, say it's a divestiture, I'll pull together a virtual team of various subject matter experts and then together we, we solution the problem. Yeah. Um, and, and I like that approach because number one, it, it's more flexible. Mm -hmm. If you get the right people, it's very adaptable and you get the benefit of cross pollinization of ideas, yeah. but drawing upon deep subject matter expertise. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think they can and should coexist. Um, but the foundation for me is, is that COE business partner model. Yeah. I like the idea of having the, uh, which is an idea that I always like to put forward uh, a project based, project based teams in organizations where you got to talk to a client from the HR perspective and, and you need to have multi you know, disciplinary views on that one problem, right? So you bring, yes, this is the expert in compensation. This is the expert in technology. This is the expert in, I don't know, in performance. And then you do, uh, you, you sort of tackle that problem from diff different perspectives rather than just the vertical uh, area of expertise where the problem is seemingly coming from. Exactly, exactly. Now, and that works great in a larger organization where you have yeah, um, multiple... Right. Yeah. But, you know, most, most, most businesses don't have huge HR departments with yeah. multiple subject matter experts. So people have to build a more generalist background and know where, not a, not a build and tap into their network. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So now let me, I, I want to, I want to go back to something that, that we talked briefly at the beginning of our conversation, which is this connectivity between strategy and, and human resources. I, while I don't like to oversimplify things, I also like to try to provide a little bit of a roadmap, if you will, or, or a playbook that can guide HR leaders and HR practitioners in, in some, some directions. When you think about a strategy and HR, what are the top three things that you may recommend HR leaders to think about and how they can go about those things to move their function in a more strategic direction, if you will? Yeah, it's really interesting that you ask um, because quite literally, literally earlier today, I was on the phone with an old friend and colleague and we decided to write a series of articles on this very subject. Uh, <laughs> So give, give us away a little bit, a little I, bit of some, yeah. a little bit of something in there. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, oh absolutely um so i think that there are some basics you have to understand your business doesn't mean you have to build the product or sell the product but as a layperson, you have to understand your business to me that's table stakes that's number one. Number two, you have to have a really firm grasp of the culture. And for me, again, at the risk of oversimplifying, a simple way to think about culture for me is how do decisions get made and how does stuff get done in your organization? If you can answer those two questions, you can describe the culture. So you need, in my, in my mind, uh, so business understanding, deep awareness of the culture and you know what buttons to push and what buttons not to push. Um, and I can show you a few scars of those learnings. Um, and then I think the, 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 the next thing is understanding the environment in which your business is operating. Um, let's, let's take this, this COVID situation. Um, for many, many organizations, this, challenge of COVID is, I think, an opportunity. It's an opportunity to pivot the business model. It's an opportunity to revisit the culture. It's an opportunity to think about the workplace itself. And do we, do we even need offices anymore? I'm certain that most HR practitioners out there are running from pillar to post with a lot of tactical things right now. Yeah. And they need to be. Because if you don't get the tactics right, strategy doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but I also would encourage people to try to take the time to think about what are the implications for my business given this environment? How can I influence where the organization is going to go? Um, what have we learned to date from the COVID experience? What works? What doesn't work? And engage your leadership with your ideas. Bring them forward. Uh, put yourself out there and look for opportunities to engage leadership on what does this mean for us going forward? How do we, how do we make ourselves better as a consequence of coming through the other side of COVID? Yeah. And, and maybe that's uh, simple, but I do think that the challenge presents an enormous opportunity for HR to add value to the organization. Absolutely. And I, I want to extend that question to thinking not just about COVID-19, but also about crisis in, in general. Yep. This is not the first time we are in a crisis. In the past 20 years, we've had three very severe crises, 9-11, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and what's going on right now uh, in 2020 with, with the, the, the coronavirus crisis. And next year is going to be something else. And the year oh, yeah. after is going to be something different. And, and I'm wondering, one thing that happens that I, in, in the view and my analysis of, of the way organizations behave is that we, we have a crisis, we react, and then we forget. Yeah. And the muscle that keeps you strong in times of crisis gets weakened by forgetting how to train it. And then when the next crisis hit, then we're back in a square zero, going back. Maybe technology is different. Maybe some things are different. But from, from a perspective of, of mindset, and behavior and culture, we're basically back in, in, in a square zero, resetting the process all over again. Yep. So my question is, how can we ensure that out of the, this crisis, coronavirus, we are truly learning to keep that muscle trained and strong 
for whenever another crisis hits us in the future? And what is the role of HR in keeping that, in keeping that muscle strong? So, <clears throat> boy, I wish I had a simple answer. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's simplicity I, here. No, I don't think there right? is. It is very complex. Um, let me see if I can respond thoughtfully. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I do think that you know, COVID-19 is what's in front of us, but your point is absolutely well taken. Next year or the year after, it'll be something else. Um, hopefully it's not the flu and COVID at the same time. Um, I should hope not. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, think, I think what we have to do as, as, a, as a professional community is take the time when this passes, because it will pass. Yeah. So what did we learn? What can we do different the next time? Um, and more importantly, to think more broadly. 